Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here this morning. Glad you're joining us this morning. Hey, uh, before we get too far in, I just wanted to take a moment, and uh, if you joined us last week, you had the privilege of hearing from Rich Barker, and um, I just want to take a moment to, to say thank you, uh, and, and you can, if you're watching online, you can write in the comments, you can tell him thank you, we'll make sure he sees it. Could, could we, in, a mo- in the room for a moment, could we give him a round of applause? Um, I, uh, I told first service that uh, the 9 a.m. service that uh, that Rich, if you're ever around here during the week, Rich Rich is probably here more often than staff people that get paid to be here. Uh, he's here all the time and has been faithful to serving his his God for decades, and I'm so grateful that God has brought him to be part of this church, and uh, and so uh, we are thankful for that. Uh, we are working through the book of Matthew, so if you have a Bible, you can go to Matthew 13. If you don't, don't worry. We're going to put everything that's important, all the relevant text right there, but if you like to follow along, you can go to Matthew 13. Uh, Matthew 13 is, uh, it's a bit of, it can be a bit of a confusing chapter. Because Matthew 13 is a chunk of stories that Jesus tells. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we started talking about these stories. We talked about that they're a type of story called parables, right? And parables are um, a linguistic tool that, to get fancy with you, the linguistic tool that um, is a simple story with a single point, Okay? And the hard thing about Matthew 13 is that Jesus tells a collection of parables, and they're not always in linear connection. Like, he tells one parable, and then he goes off and he talks about some other stuff, and then he explains that parable. Then he tells another parable, and then he tells two other parables, and then he goes back and explains the second parable that he didn't explain before he told the two other parables. Right? And, and so we have to remember that each of them are a single story with a simple point. And Matthew 13 is an incredibly important part of Jesus' ministry. Uh, um, in, in the book of Matthew, if you don't know, there's 28 chapters in the book of Matthew. So we're basically in the middle of the book of Matthew. We're not in the middle of Jesus's life because Matthew doesn't record it chronologically. It's not important to an ancient Near Eastern culture to record things chronologically like it is for us, right? But we're kind of in the middle of the narrative that Matthew's trying to tell us. And he begins with Jesus's ministry in Matthew 4, verse 17. And he begins with this statement. This is important. Jesus began to preach and teach, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, this is the message that you see all throughout the book of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven has has come upon you. The kingdom of heaven is in your midst. This comes over and over and over. Now, we're in chapter 13. We're nine chapters later. And the logical question begins to be asked when Jesus keeps saying this question, oh, the statement over and over and over. Matthew 12, he says something very similar over and over and over again. The, the question you have to ask yourself at some point, if you take the words of Jesus seriously, is where? Right? Where? Matthew 13 comes this, this important juncture in Jesus' ministry where he's been declaring this statement over and over again, and the people began to ask the question, Jesus, if the kingdom's here, where? Uh, in 2010, there was a photographer, her name is Sally Davies, and I don't know what was going on on that Saturday in New York City on April 10th, but apparently it was a pretty boring Saturday because she started um, an experiment, a photography 
expose, I don't know what you'd call it. She, she went to McDonald's and bought a Happy Meal, okay? And then she made money off of it. This is photography today, okay? So she went on Saturday and she bought a Happy Meal and she put it on a plate. And then from this day on, Saturday, April 10th, 2010, she began to take a picture every single day of this Happy Meal. I don't know who at the time she thought would want to watch it. I don't know what she thought was going to happen, right? But she began to take a picture every day of this Happy Meal. Now, I'm going to skip forward. She took a picture every single day. I'm going to skip forward for you to day 653. Okay, wait a second. I don't think you're as shocked as I was when I watched this. 653. Look at day one. 653, day one. 653, day one, 650. All that looks like is she just zoomed in on the day one picture. 653 days later, it looks the exact same. She said it only took a couple days before the flies stopped showing interest, right? She stopped after six years. Let me show you the picture after six years. Just makes you want to stop McDonald's on your way home, right? Or order in some McDonald's. Go pick it up at a drive-thru. 2,293 days later, and it looks like nothing's happened. Jesus kept saying, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the people kept looking around going, Where? Jesus, have you seen this busted and broken world? It, it, it looks like a pile of a happy meal that flies don't even want. Every day passes, and it seems like nothing's changing. So Jesus, in response, he tells them two simple stories. So we're going to read the two stories. The two stories are this. It starts in verse 31. It says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field, Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven, right? This is what we're asking the question. Where is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Several years ago, I got on a kick. Uh, for those of you, if, if you're into Enneagram number stuff, I'm an Enneagram seven, which means that um, I like adventure, I like new things, I like experiences. I like more, this is a weird thing about my broken soul. I like more the anticipation of doing something than actually doing it, right? Like I get all excited about waiting, oh, it's coming, it's coming. And then when it happens, it's like, meh. That was kind of boring, right? I, I, I like new experiences and new things, and my wife just has to live on this roller coaster that is my life, right? And so, like, for example, at one point I thought, you know what would be really great on top of doing full-time ministry is I should start a coffee shop. And I had a place picked out. If you've been around here for a long time, Rookies used to be out on 99. It's now a dentist office. And I thought that would be a perfect coffee shop. All these rooms you could study. It's right on 99, plenty of visibility. And, and then that didn't work out. And then there's a, there's a house that's often 
often condemned or foreclosed upon, which is the great place to start something that you would eat and drink things at, um, across from what used to be the Monmouth Police Department by the park. It's on a corner, you'll see it. It almost always has stickers in the window because it either got condemned or foreclosed upon. And I thought, oh, that'd be great to do a coffee shop and like a music venue, it's right by the park, that'd be awesome. Um, Then I had this idea that I was going to start the West Coast craze of frozen custard. Because if you don't know this, the rest of America savors this great treat called frozen custard, right? And we don't. And so I thought, so all summer, almost every single day, I would make different types of frozen custards. I would experiment with with different recipes and I was going picking fresh blackberries. And oh my goodness, I had this one, it was this frozen custard and um, uh, it was fresh blackberries and I would mash on top uh, graham crackers. And it was like a cheesecake. It was was amazing. It would change your life forever, okay? And so I had this idea, I'm gonna start this food cart and it's gonna be frozen custard and we're gonna change the world with frozen custard. And then, then I thought, I get in the garden. I, I just, my wife lives on this roller coaster of chaos and I'm running this trip. And so for whatever reason, I decided this day that I was going to become an artisan bread maker. Okay. Cause why not? And so I did a lot of research and I did just enough research to be dangerous and arrogant. Okay. And, um, I learned, you know, from the stuff I've read, I decided that the best thing to do was to start to make a sourdough starter if I was going to become this artisan bread maker because, like Oprah, I love bread. Can I get an amen? Right? There is something broken in your soul if you do not like a good slice of hot, fresh bread. Right? And so I decided I was going to make the sourdough starter. And did you know this? You know, a lot of you probably know this. A lot of you probably, I tell you stories that I'm surprised by and you're like, Sean, you're an idiot, right? Everybody already knows that, but you may not know this, okay? To make bread, you know what you need? You only have to contribute two things. All you have to put in a bowl is water and flour. Do you know this? All you have to do is you put water and flour in because the third ingredient is yeast. And did you know this? This is crazier. Yeast is everywhere. Did you know that? You, like you can go buy the little container at the store, yeast, and you can put it in. But if you just put water and flour on your counter, you should do this when you go home. You put water and flour on your counter. There's yeast everywhere. It's in the air. And in this like witchcraft of science that I barely understand, the yeast that is everywhere begins to work its way into the flour and the water. And somehow it, it, uh, it changes the chemistry of the flour and it eats the flour and produces the goodness of God right in front of you. Right? It's all right there. Now, now here, here's, the, here's, here's the crazy thing about when you're trying to make a sourdough starter. You put water and flour, and if you're like me, you have a wife that goes, she just plays along. Okay, Sean, great idea, water and flour. I put water and flour in a bowl on a counter, and then you get up the next day, and you're like, oh, I'm going to have sourdough bread, and you go, and you know what's there? Water and flour, just sitting there, and after a couple days, it starts to stink. That's why they call it sourdough starts to smell funky. But you leave it there, and you leave it there, and you leave it there, and you know what happens? Eventually, one day you get up, and you walk over to your little bowl of rotting flour and water, and there's a little bubble. There's one little bubble, and and you leave it, and the next day, you go back, and there's more bubbles, but they're really thin, and they're really delicate. 
And, and, then, and then if you leave it, the next day you come back and there's more and more bubbles and they've worked their way through and, and it, the, the whole mass of water and flour begins to transform and shape and move and change because see, here's the thing. As soon as you have water and flour in a bowl, the lump of water and flour is already becoming a loaf of bread even before you can see it. Even before you can see it. Jesus is saying, what I'm doing the restoration of all things, making all things right, it's like a lump of dough that just sits on a counter. It's hard to see. And, and a lot of times, a lot of times, the kingdom of God and what God's doing, it doesn't look like anything's happening. It looks like it's just sitting there. And to be honest, sometimes it looks like the world's just sitting there and rotting. But God's doing something. You remember... Uh, we've been in the book of Matthew for about three years now. There's a really important truth that you have to understand when you read the book of Matthew, and it'll change the way you read the book of Matthew. It'll change the way you understand everything about the book of Matthew, okay? Uh, we've said this. Matthew is a... Ha-ha! Some of you paid attention for three years. Matthew is a Jew, and he's writing to a bunch of... Jews. So it changes the things he focuses on and the way he talks and their understanding and their expectation. You see, when Jesus came and he said, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is here, they thought they knew exactly what he meant. They had all these envisions. They'd been waiting. They'd been waiting, some of them, for hundreds and hundreds of years, for generation after generation with anticipation, for the moment that God would appear, that his righteous king would come and he would vanquish the darkness and he would reestablish the kingdom of Israel and, and he would ascend to, the, to sit on the throne of David and, and that, all, that, that everything would be set right. They knew, at least they thought, what God was doing. But Jesus comes Jesus comes and he declares, that kingdom is here. But they look around like that happy meal, happy meal picture and look and go, well, it doesn't look like anything's happening. You see, they had such anticipation and expectation. If you read in the Old Testament, it'll talk about the day of the Lord or that day. They didn't even have to finish the sentence. They would just talk about that day. That day when God comes and he sets everything right that day and Jesus comes and says, it's here, it's here, that day's here. And they go, what? I imagine a lot of them came when Jesus came in and, and he said, right, I mean, the first thing he says, Matthew 4, verse 17, the kingdom of heaven is here. They, they probably heard what he had to say and they ran home to their families with anticipation, excitement. The kingdom of heaven is here. He's here. God is here. He's going to do something. He's going to fix everything. That day has come. And they ran back to Jesus with their family and friends and their neighbors and they piled close to him to hear about the incoming kingdom of heaven of that day of God making all things right and all they saw was what looked like a lump of flour and water sitting on a countertop. In fact, there's a spot in Luke 17, it probably chronologically happens right about the same time as Matthew 13 and a group of religious leaders begin to ask Jesus, and they ask him pretty straightforward. You can read it in Matthew and Luke 17, but they ask him, you keep saying this. You keep saying the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Where is it, right? And maybe you've wanted to ask that question. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's just been this year, or maybe it's been for a lot longer for you. You've been asked that question, God, what are you doing? Have you seen the world, God? 
Have you seen the brokenness? Have you seen my life? Have you seen my marriage? Have you seen my kids? Have you seen our community? When will it come? That day, all things new. Wipe away every tear. The kingdom of God, everything made right. And this is what Jesus says. In Luke 17, he says this. Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, ah, here it is. Or, or, or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's like yeast that's everywhere. And you may not always see it, but it's always doing something. In our laundry room, we have one of those measuring sticks, right? Some of you who've had kids, you, you actually got like a, a height measuring stick, or you just have like a door frame where you mark on it, right? And, um, we have one, and ours, uh, you know, we, uh, my mom made us one, and it actually has like the, the increments, because there's important life stage increments. You know, like right now, my daughter, the one she's waiting for with anticipation, is the day when she's tall enough to be able to sit in the front seat with the airbag, right? And she knows how tall she needs to get on it, right? And uh, there, were, there were increments where like, um, you know, where you were a certain height, so you could ride on certain rides at Silver Dollar City where my in-laws live, right? Well, they, they don't actually live at Silver Dollar City because that'd be weird. They live near Silver Dollar City. But there, there, were, there were increments, right? And there was, you had to get to these spots, right? And to be honest, most of the time, I don't know about your kids, most of the time my kids don't care, right? Most of the time we call them and we tell them, oh, hey, come on, come in, come, go, let's get measured. And we get this book, you know, you get the biggest, thickest book you can find and you put it square up on there. And, and depending on how good or bad they've been, depends on how many hairs you make sure to get stuck on the back wall there. So when they pull their head, just me, um, this is awkward. So, um, <laughs> you put the book right there and, and then you mark it, right? And you do it a couple times a year. The kids are entertained for like, you know, 74, 75 seconds and, uh, and they run off. But, but sometimes, sometimes they'll get fixated on it. And like my daughter at one point, she knew she needed to grow five inches to get to uh, one thing. And she said, Dad, Daddy, how, how long do you think it'll take me to grow five inches? I, I don't know. I mean, everyone grows differently, you know. Well, I think that I'll grow an inch a month, so five months. And I said, baby girl, if you grow five inches in five months, your whole body's going to ache. Like, that would be amazing, right? But, she, she, but most of the time, you know what happens most of the time? You come and you measure, you put the little pencil mark, and then you come back months later, and you put another pencil mark, and they're this far apart. You see a lot of times what God's doing we, w we want five inches in five months. And we come back and look, and instead, in this bowl of flour and water, there's just one little bubble. We go, come on, come on. God. Kingdom of heaven's here. Kingdom of heaven's at hand. The good news of God restoring and making all things right. God, what are you doing? Aren't you going to do something about this? And there's one little bubble. I wonder how often... I wonder how often God would say something to us like, go my child, just because you can't see it doesn't mean I'm not doing something. Just because you can't see the yeast that is transforming the lump of rotting mushiness of this world does not mean that I'm not restoring and redeeming just because it doesn't look like what you thought it looked like. 
Just because it's not a king riding in on a horse to establish a kingdom and a reign and a throne over Israel, just because it looks a lot more like a bowl of just mushy nothingness sitting on the counter, just because in your heart it doesn't feel like like powerful transformation in a moment, just because you can't see it doesn't mean I'm not doing something. Sometimes it's just a fragile, small, delicate, single bubble. Or maybe it's like a tiny seed, tiny little mustard seed that comes to dominate the landscape. After first service, actually, it's not in my notes, but after first service, someone actually came up to me and they said, yeah, about that mustard seed. One time, uh, uh, my dad was planting an acre of grass and one of his buddies, as a joke, uh, put a bunch of mustard seed in the grass seed and we didn't realize until it was all about an inch wide and three inches tall and I had to go out there with a hand, with a, uh, uh, with a, you know, words, English. With an axe. That's what they're called. It's a long, complicated word I have a hard time with. <laughs> but see, I, I've talked about the mustard seed before. And, and I don't think I even realized until just this week, I was thinking about it. You know, this little mustard seed, Jesus talks about this little mustard seed that's so tiny. He calls it the smallest of all the seeds, right? It's super tiny and you put it in the ground and eventually that little mustard seed becomes a tree so large that it consumes the whole garden, okay? But that first time that mustard seed breaks through the earth, it looks like nothing more than a little weed or a piece of grass. So delicate that it could be crushed just by a random passerby. And so often, what God's doing in this world, what God's doing in our hearts, looks like just this little piece of grass breaking through the foundations of the earth. So in this season, whatever it looks like for you, do not lose heart. God is doing something. It is the good news of the gospel. It is the testimony. It is, uh, we quote this often, that God who gave his own son for you, what more will he not do for you? The verse in uh, a different translation, the passage ends this way. It says this, that uh, the yeast will work through until it was all leavened. All leavened. When something's leavened, the very nature of it has changed. You can never separate it back into water, flour, and yeast. What the flour was has been transformed You see, what God is trying to tell us is that just because you can't see it doesn't mean I'm not doing something and that I'm going to restore all things until it's all been changed. So what do we do in the in-between time? In this time where a lot of times it looks bleak and it looks hard and, and maybe just personally in your life it's been a season of hardship and, and, and maybe even hopelessness and despair and, and it looks like God's not doing anything or you cry out to him and it just feels like your prayers are hollow or empty or not going anywhere. What do we do in this moment when the kingdom of God may just look like a tiny little shoot breaking forth from the surface of the earth? I, uh, I went to school in East Tennessee, and I know what you're thinking. You know, when you think of regions of America that are symbolic of higher education and learning, the Appalachian foothills is the place you think of. And uh, so that's why I went there, obviously, is because... But East Tennessee is an amazing place. If you've never been to East Tennessee, it's an amazing place. It's beautiful. It's awesome. Uh, it, it's a great place. But Tennessee is a weird state. 
You, you may not have thought of this. Uh, in fact, Tennessee um, goes back and forth between Florida with having the highest sales tax. And the reason is, is because uh, the largest industry in Tennessee is tourism. Okay, here's why. Tennessee, if you think geographically, Tennessee is like a parallelogram. Parallelogram is like a rectangle that's been tipped over if you forget geography, uh, ge geometry class, okay? And, and if you think of on the west side, they break it up in three regions. West Tennessee is um, Memphis, right? The, think of all the things you think about Memphis, like barbecue, Elvis, Beale Street, Mississippi River, Rivertown, right? That, that's, that's, that's West Tennessee is, is Memphis. And then you have uh, Mid-Tennessee, Mid-Tennessee, I'm, I'm convinced you have, they call it Mid-Tennessee and not Central Tennessee. You notice we call it Central Oregon, not Mid-Oregon, right? I think they call it Mid-Tennessee because Central's too long a word. They have a hard time spelling words that long in the South. And so Mid-Tennessee... Anybody from the South? Because if you're not, you shouldn't get offended. Okay, here we go. So Mid-Tennessee, Mid-Tennessee is Nashville. Now, in the last 50 years, Nashville's become like country music, and that may be what you think of, but Nashville historically has been like Southern wealth, sprawling plantations, big, beautiful homes. That's, that's Mid-Tennessee. And then over here, you have uh, East Tennessee. You have Knoxville, right? Knoxville, Appalachian Hills, uh, you know, right? Like that all kind of everything you think of that comes with the foothills, right? And that's East Tennessee. So in, in the 1860s, America went through a pretty traumatic experience we call the Civil War. In June 8th of, of 1861, Tennessee seceded from the Union and was the uh, soon to be the 11th and final state to join the Confederacy. But, but a weird thing happened shortly after June 8th. Shortly after June 8th, this state seceded from the Union, and East Tennessee had delegates that got together in Knoxville. It's called the Knoxville Delegation. They got together in Knoxville, and East Tennessee seceded from the secession. <laughs> Isn't that weird? They got to, and, it, and it wasn't just symbolic, right? A lot of times politicians do symbolic. It wasn't just symbolic. It was so serious that one of the first places that the Confederate armies had to send their forces was to East Tennessee to suppress what they saw as a rebellion in the rebellion. For the length of the Civil War, East Tennessee unwaveringly committed their allegiance to Abraham Lincoln and the United States of America believing that although the flags that flew in their land may look different, that they were rightful citizens and rightful um, uh, citizens with a different president and a different nation than the flags that flew over their land. You see, East Tennessee was a subversive rebellion. We, as, the king, as members of the kingdom of God in this in-between time, are to live as those who live in East Tennessee. The flag that flies over this world, Scripture calls this the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. What it looks like, the nation that we live a part of, the world that we live a part of, we are not, Peter tells us, we are not citizens of this land, of this nation, of this world. We are citizens submissive to a different king under a different flag. But the good news is, Revelation 11, 
It's a book, it kind of tells us about how everything's gonna go in the end. It says this in Revelation 11. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world, right? This world, this busted world, this world that looks like a flower and water just sitting kind of rotting on the countertop. This world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. One day, this kingdom, this broken world will become fully God's kingdom, but it's slow. It's slow and it's messy and sometimes it smells funky and a lot of times you look at it and it doesn't look like God's doing anything and you ask questions, you go, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing something? But I think that what God wants us to hear, what Jesus is trying to tell us and those in the first century, what he's trying to tell Matthew and his disciples is that just because you can't see it, just because this world looks like it's a rotting, decay, ball, a mass of nothing, that I'm doing something, that one day this whole world, this whole kingdom, kingdom will become his, set right and perfect. I think the words that Paul writes to the church of Galatia are perfect for us today. He says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if, look at this, look at this, so important right here, if we do not give up. You may not see it. You may not see it, but do not give up. God is on the move. There's a pastor named Tony Campolo. <clears throat> He's uh, he shared this story uh, from a Sunday morning on his church at his church, where he uh, jokingly calls that they had a preach off and multiple pastors um, preach on the Sunday. And he says, he says, um, you know, it, it's really a competition to see who's the best preacher on staff. Right? He says, we didn't say it that way. We, we said, it's all for the glory of God. Right? But he says, really. And he tells this really beautiful story of encouragement. And so instead of me trying to recite it, I just, I want to end this morning with giving you a chance to hear him tell the story in his own words. So let's watch this right here. I belong to a black church in West Philadelphia. I grew up in West Philadelphia. The community's all black now. We still go to the same church. It's a neat church. I mean, you've been a great congregation, great audience, whatever you want to call it. But, but as good as you've been, you're not as good as the people in my church. I mean, yeah, you've got to preach to a black congregation to know what good is, you see. I mean, in a, in a black church, good or bad, they let you know. One time I was preaching in my church and nothing was happening. Ever you feel a preacher just dying on his feet? I was about three quarters of the way through the sermon and some lady in the back yelled, Jesus, help him, Jesus. And I, I, I knew, I knew it wasn't going well. You know what I mean? I just knew it wasn't going well. Likewise, likewise, when you're really on in my church, they let you know, because the deacons sit right up front, and whenever you say something good, they go crazy. They yell, preach, brother, preach, man, preach, preach. Man, when they say preach, I go. And the women in my church, they do this, they do this. Whenever you say something good, they put one hand in the air, and they go, well, well, well. When you get a well, your hormones bubble. And the men out there in the congregation, they do something special. You say something super, the men yell, keep going, brother. Keep going, keep going. You don't get that from a white audience. 
white audience is always yelling, stop, stop, you know what I mean? It was my turn to preach. And I got up and I want to tell you people, I was good. And they started coming on, and the more they came on, the better I got. And the better I got, the more they came on. I got better and better. I got so good, I wanted to take notes on me. <laughs> I came to the end of that message, that place went bananas. I mean, it went crazy. I sat down, my pastor squeezed my knee, he said, You did all right, boy. I hate it when he calls me boy. And I turned to him and I said, Pastor? He said, Yeah. I said, You going to be able to top that? He said, son, you sit back, because the old man is going to do you in. <laughs> I didn't figure anybody could do me in that day, but the old guy got up and he did me in. <laughs> With one line, for an hour and a half, he preached one line over and over again. Here's the line. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Now, that doesn't rot your socks out, but you should have heard him do it. Started nice and soft. You know, we're all there. And he started with, it was Friday. It was Friday. And my Jesus is dead on the tree. But that's Friday. Sundays are coming. Somebody yelled, preach, brother, preach. And he started, Friday, Friday Mary's crying her eyes out. The disciples are running in every direction like sheep without a shepherd. But that's Friday, Friday. Sundays are coming. Man, they're beginning to pick up now. We were going, well, keep going. Friday, Friday, those are looking at the world and saying, as things have been, so they shall be. You can't change nothing in this world. You can't change nothing in this world. But they didn't know. It was only Friday. Sundays are coming. You're getting on to it. Try one more time here. Friday! Friday, them forces that oppress the poor and keep people down. Them forces that destroy people. Them forces is in control and they're going to rule. But they don't know. It's only Friday! We'll dehunkatize you yet. We really will. Sundays are coming! You're on to it. We'll do it one more time, okay? Just one more time. Friday! Friday people are saying, darkness is going to rule the world. Sadness is going to be everywhere, but they don't know it's only Friday. Sundays are coming! You, know, you do feel better, don't you? We kept on doing that for an hour, an hour and a quarter, an hour and a half, one line, over and over again. Friday, Sunday's coming. Friday, Sunday's coming. Friday, Sunday's coming. He came to the end of the message. I was exhausted. <laughs> he just yelled at the top of his lungs, Friday! And all 1,500 of us yelled, Sunday's are coming! <laughs> People, that's the good news. When we take the gospel seriously, this is what will happen. Our psychological needs will begin to be met. Our capacity to love will be developed. Our appreciation of the miraculous will cause us to expect great things from God. And the Spirit of God that possesses us will motivate us to give ourselves to those who are suffering in a way that we have failed to do up to this day. And when all of that happens, this is the good news. This is the very good news. 
that even though this world is rotten as it is right now, we know it's only Friday! Amen. Amen. Here's the, here's the deal. The world you live in may feel all like Friday. It may feel like a rotting pile of mush of nothing. But Jesus wants us to know that even when we cannot see it, even when the darkness of Friday seems to consume the whole landscape, even when the disciples run afraid, that he's doing something. That he is doing something. He's at work. So this morning, this morning, may we walk with a boldness, with a confidence, with a hope, with a conviction that even when we cannot see it, that like yeast in a pile of mush, he is transforming and redeeming even the most broken parts of your soul.